Hello everyone and welcome to Mental Health Much, the podcast that talks about everything queer and mental health. Thank you for joining this episode. It is episode six of our season on loneliness and we are just continuing our conversation with Dale and Mackenzie about loneliness and the topic of today's episode is the difference between the gay scene and the gay community and how that can create some loneliness within gay bi and queer men. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation and don't hesitate to give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. We are discussing chapter six of the book on loneliness. One of the points that I make in my book is that I believe that a lot of gay, bi, and queer men are lonely because they are looking for connection in the gay scene. And I feel like the words gay scene and gay community are used interchangeably, right, left, and center. And I... I'm guilty of this. I use one when maybe sometimes I mean the other. One of the things that I started to do a few years ago is to talk about the gay communities, to say that there was more than just one, just to create some nuances. This was a shorter chapter that mostly just talked about the difference between the two and what is the gay scene, what is the community, and how do we invite people in as queer people. And I truly believe that this has a huge impact. Like the gay scene, I think, has a huge impact on loneliness within gay, bi, and queer men. But I want to hear from one of the two of you. Yes, I I liked this chapter a lot. It left me a lot to think about because I hadn't really considered that there might be a difference between the gay scene and the gay community at first. But as you talk about it in the chapter, I could kind of sense like, that. oh, there are some differences. And it's not to say they're mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. I think, like you say in the chapter, the scene can emerge in traditionally community spaces and vice versa. But in the chapter, like you talk about the history of the gay scene as coming first and primarily being focused around what I found to be like acts of pleasure and play yeah um which i thought was really interesting so yeah the gay scene seems to be like around nightlife partying drinking alcohol doing drugs not necessarily but typically those are things that happen in the gay scene whereas the gay community i found that like those spaces typically evolved around doing work and not necessarily like work in the traditional sense of like capitalist production work like not labor necessarily yeah not necessarily labor but like doing the work of like supporting each other in a community and showing up for one another and just trying to do good as a collective those were the things that kind of came out of the gay community you talk about this in the sense that the gay community came out of the AIDS crisis mm -hmm. where primarily like non-for-profit organizations sprouted in the movement. And yeah, they were kind of like the first examples of the gay community, like coming together to support each other. So I, as I read the chapter, those were kind of like the two broad distinctions that I made was, Oh, the gay scene is more about pleasure. Whereas like 
the gay community is more about working together. Mm-hmm. I love history and anthropology, and I find the history of the gay scene and the gay community to be fascinating. And I think younger, oh my God, I sound so old, but I think younger generations don't necessarily appreciate all that there is to think about about our history where there was a time when for safety reasons, a lot of the queer people who were able to quote unquote pass in their daily life would use the gay scene only to go out and dance in places that were dark and anonymous. And they were able to then leave this space and go live their more safe life outside of it. And then in a weird way, I think those people who were not able to pass either because they were more queer or they were like, they were trans or I think because they had HIV or AIDS that was physically visible at the time. So those people who could not pass had to create a community and do the work and work together and could not just access in and out of this really young, youthful sex oriented pleasure area. And so I don't think we think enough about how that shaped who we are (laughs) as a people. I'm talking especially cis men or like gay men right now. And um, I also really want to point out that before it was called the gay scene in the gay community, it was called the gay milieu. And like, honestly, (laughs) we should bring this back. I love that. I have this underlined and exclamation marked. I'm like, I'm now referring it to it as the gay milieu. Oh, it's it's just so much queerer. Like, I love that word. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, reading this chapter, I also oftentimes never took the time to really differentiate between the gay scene and the gay community. And I think I've probably used the terms interchangeably, but I really like your sort of definitions. I, I find in general queer history, I'm also like, a, I love learning about history. And I think queer history is just so fascinating. And oftentimes I think, in my opinion, I find queer people much more interesting because we've had to go through so many challenges and we spend so much time not being ourselves and like building so many walls that when we are free to be ourselves, there's like so many things. And, you know, a lot of the history you talked about at the moment, I'm listening to a podcast called Fiasco, which is about the AIDS epidemic and basically how just the incredible trailblazers, you know, it started with just so much fear and then also fighting within your own community and educating about health and then finally coalescing into this like political movement and making sure that the levels of power understood how bad this was and like to get them to pay attention i'm also watching this show called fellow travelers which is just about this these like two men and kind of their relationship through the decades but right now they're in the 1950s and they're living through mccarthyism where they are currently trying to get deviants out of the federal government because they thought that these deviants which they use this coded language to talk about homosexuals were more at risk of being compromised and like being used by communists to like take down America. Oh my God. So they, you know, they're currently just like people are turning on each other and throwing each other under the bus and like cruising spots are being targeted and they're using that as blackmail. Like it's, it's a good show. 
and I highly recommend it. But it's so important because so many times other queer groups and conversations that I've had, people are like, just so tired of the gay scene. I just don't fit in. I like don't relate to it. Actually, for a long time, I didn't think I was gay because I was like, oh, I'm like, I don't see myself in the queer scene. But what it was is finding community, finding people who look like you or have the same interests as you. There's so many people who don't drink or like don't necessarily want to go to a club. Board game nights are amazing. Sports teams are amazing. Running clubs, walking clubs, these kinds of things. But I will say you do have to put in some effort. Mm -hmm. There are people who are like, well, I don't want to go to the clubs. I'm tired of Grindr, Tinder, whatever. So you do have to put in a little bit of effort elsewhere, like to find communities that will, you know, serve you. Yeah. There's something that I am going to talk out loud for the first time, because it's a reflection that I was literally having this week about the gay scene and the gay community. And so we're all kind of the same age. We're all, the three of us are fully millennials. And I think the generation above us created the gay scene and the gay community. But the millennials, we arrived and we really grabbed it and made it our own. And I think it's like aging with us. And I have been feeling almost like a boomer because I was having a conversation with a much younger person who did not recognize themselves at all with the gay community as it exists right now, where it's predominantly, you know, by and for millennials queer because we've had that power and we created places for us. And I was looking at things, just just things like uh, the average age, maybe of the dodgeball league in Toronto. I feel like millennials, we created the dodgeball league a while ago and now they're still part of it. So like 10 years ago, the average age was probably 10 years younger and now it's 10 years older and it has sort of like evolved and changed as us millennials have evolved and changed as well. And I know that the younger generation, because I was having this conversation, were not recognizing themselves whatsoever in what we've done. And I don't know what to do with this information. And I, I, I don't know. I like it. It's, I think it's really relevant and uh, I've never talked about it out loud before, but we need to be more careful of including the next generation. Otherwise we're doing what we keep complaining that the generation above us has done to us. And I guess I'm approaching my forties to be able to say something like that. (laughs) Yeah. I can totally see that how we may have um, disenchanted people who are younger than us from joining this specific scene. Cause I think we fail at times at creating links between generations in our communities because i think i mean it when you think about it like like you discuss in the chapter this is all so new right like we're among the first generations of people to live openly and publicly queer you know so yeah i think maybe we just haven't learned how to like create those links between generations and we just need to practice 
practice it collectively and intentionally, right? But yeah, we're, I think we're failing at that, like you said. Yeah. Well, if we look at even the online spaces like Scruff and Grinder and Tinder, millennials, we own these spaces. Like the core group of people who are on gay dating apps are millennials. And we are the people who are the most quote unquote like popular and who create the rules because it arrived in 2007 or eight when we were young and taking over. And uh, that's a really important thing to think about when thinking about this scene and, and how do we leave a legacy. And I was like kind of searching for a dating app that was not for millennial queers and I couldn't find one, but I'm also I've also not done like a super extensive search, but I couldn't really find a place where young queer people recognize themselves and find themselves, especially because physical spaces now are so expensive. And, you know, I was telling this person that I was talking to that when I was their age, I could go out for a night in the village with like $25 in my pocket and have a good night out. Uh, and of course, that was in Montreal. <laughs> and Montreal is still significantly cheaper than Toronto, but it's still a huge difference that we need to talk about. Like physical spaces are so expensive. I think this conversation kind of lends itself to something you had later on in the chapter where you talked about like how, uh, especially in the 80s, to combat this like sickly narrative that like gay men were sick, like this uber, like healthy clean cut kind of image emerged like big muscular like very fit and then you know eventually like mainstream and like pornography also like that all coalesce and I think like Mackenzie said kind of we're like the first generation to really like be very visible out there and I guess to do that we have created a lot of labels for ourselves I don't spend a lot of time with Gen Z, but the few times that I've like kind of got glimpses into <laughs> Gen Z, I, I don't have a lot of friends that are like below 27. So and this is a very kind of like millennial perspective, but because we are so focused on labels, twink, jock, bear, top, bottom, verse, whatever, like uh, younger generations are just like very fluid. You know, they're not as... Like, I know I, I, identity is very important to queer people. And of course, that will always be an element. But I feel like there is much more fluid than sort of millennials. Because, like, they've kind of grown up seeing a lot of, like, queer representation. And they're like, yeah, I'll, like, pick and choose what I want and create my own kind of identity here. It also circles back to something you wrote back in an earlier chapter where one of the older participants was like, I don't like to be called a queer. That was a slur. I like to be saying, I'm like, I'm a gay man. So, you know, it evolves. One of the first thing you talked about, Dale, was this idea of to distance themselves from sickness of what AIDS looked like and to distance themselves from this idea that like gay men were all quote unquote effeminate and readable as gay. There's like really a lot of gay men in the 80s and 90s who embraced that ultra masculinity. Like how do we look the more masculine possible and how do we take those masculine identities to avoid the bullying and move away from this idea that gay men are sick and effeminate and frail 
and really taking it to an extreme because gay people, we are really good at taking stuff to an extreme and thinking about this in our history does not necessarily make it easier for every single queer man with body image issues who walk in our communities. Yeah, I really like that you you talked about that in the chapter, like the comparison between the f- perceived frailty of people who have AIDS and the perceived femininity of people who are gay and how those two are linked together to create an environment where we idealize A, strength and health, quote unquote, and B, masculinity. And how those two things, like, are some of the, like, you know, prime, like, sexual currency of the gay scene, right? Like, that we've discussed, you know, the idea that, like, certain people are more attractive or desirable. And how, yeah, the gay scene just kind of revolves around this and creates this exclusive environment, And I think that was the other distinction that kind of stood out to me between the gay scene and the gay community was the idea that the gay scene is more exclusive versus the community being more inclusive and how those two can interact. Like I'm thinking of, you know, if you're out at a bar with an event that, you know, has a lot of like attractive people who are creating this gay scene, this idea of being exclusive. But within this environment, you know, there's still like opportunities to create community and to find community. I think some of that has to do with inviting people in Mm -hmm. and how, how we can do that and creating and establishing those connections, I think is how community emerges out of the gay scene. So yeah, I really like that idea of exclusive versus inclusive for the two yeah the the last section on inviting people in is so important um you know potentially if you don't see yourself in the community maybe try and like make a community um as well i mean like within the the queer community there are like certain more like culturally relevant events you know specifically like say like a south asian event or an arab event or you know, more East Asian event. I I wish I remember where I read this and I don't want to take credit for it, but I remember they basically talked about how the queer community is good from protecting itself from like outside forces, but within itself, it is like not that inclusive. And there are Mm -hmm. many walls and there are many slicing and dicing and, and people are not as nice. I think the same expectation of, being nice by people who are not queer, we should also extend to people within the queer community as well. Yeah. Well, that goes back to my point about millennials, Dale, you were saying, I think our generation, we saw that there were flaws in the community, like the gay South Asian night. It's people we know who were like, I don't see myself. I don't recognize myself. It's people on our generation who now created those events. And I wonder if the younger generation really sees themselves in those events. And although I really applaud the work of my friends and colleagues who created that night, what is the next step to make it yeah, even more inclusive in terms of age? I love that the people with who I worked in bars when I was 21, 22 years old in the gay village in Montreal are now the bar owners of 
the bars and the establishments in the village in Montreal. I love that. But again, it's all our generation who really took over. And I really want us to be mindful, to be open to the next generation, to leave them their space, to do exactly the same thing that we did and to not be resentful because things are changing. Yeah. I feel very passionately about this, obviously. Yeah, you, no, it's true. Um, we talk about not doing gender role correctly and in the, that aspect that like gay men wanted to uh, to not be the, the stereotypes to avoid bullying. I don't remember if it's in this chapter or somewhere else in the book that I talk about how in uh, movies and books, like people who do not play gender roles properly are always the villains. I, you know, refer to um, to a Christmas Carol from 1938, which is one of the first one that did that. And then obviously like all the Disney villains of our generations were all... Queer-coded. Yeah, they were all people who were not doing gender the right way. Like we think of Scar, we think of Ursula, we think of uh, Jafar, you know, it was always people who were not displaying their gender properly. And then, of course, we have to make fun of J.K. Rowling, who literally used that trope for every single one of the villains in the book series Harry Potter. And it's awful that we've only seen our generation growing up, people who do not have kids and who do not partake in nuclear family and who do not partake in gender role properly as the villain all the time. Yeah, it's so sad. And like, yeah, I'm hoping, I think I'm, we're seeing more representation on the other side, which, you know, is definitely a positive for the community. Because, yeah, we need to see more uh, non-villain queers mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to feel like we we matter and like we have a space in the community, right? Yeah. You know, if I'm to take a more radical approach, it's like, you won't be happy till we're all as unhappy as you living your like, path that was set out for you. You know, God forbid someone who doesn't follow the rules is living a happy, fulfilling life. That's like a threat to heteronormative society. So they have to be like, oh, well, they're living differently. There's dire consequences, like the good guy will take you out. And they're like evil. So I don't think I'm going to watch a Disney movie the same way again. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, you, like you've shattered something. I'm, I don't know if I should be upset by it or not. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if it changed in a newer generation of Disney movie. Cause I am not necessarily kept up to date, but like, of course everybody wants Ariel and Prince Eric to finish together, but everybody watches the little mermaid because Ursula is badass. <laughs> yeah. Well, the new generation of Disney movies, there isn't a villain. Oh, the villain is, yeah, intergenerational trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like, I have to fight my own demons kind of a thing. Yeah. Like like that kind of stuff. That is true. That is true. Good for you, Disney. Was that a reference to Encanto? <laughs> like Frozen and like, I haven't watched a lot of Disney movies in a long time, but I think they're all like that. Um, one of the last thing I wanted to include in our talk about this chapter is how I think one of the character brings this up in the book. I think it's Ari who says that it feels like some of the gay men around him only know how to be in the gay scene. And so wherever they go, they bring the gay scene 
with them and it just feels more comfortable with them because they know the rules and they know how to interact. And that I feel like I've heard that from a lot of people and it keeps connections at maybe a superficial, not vulnerable level. And it does feel familiar and um, safe maybe for some people, but it really is a detriment to deeper, more vulnerable connections with others. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the reverse side of my earlier point of like finding community in the scene. Like this is like finding the scene in the community. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it does happen because I think it's like a mindset, you know, like being in the scene is like a having this mindset that like everything is going to revolve around exclusivity, sexual desirability, and yeah, putting up barriers basically and preventing other people from being a part of something, right? And I think community has the power and potential to counter this by like holding those people accountable in those community spaces and being like, hey, like maybe let's not exclude these people for so-and-so reasons. Like, you know, they're already experiencing enough oppression and exclusion out there, like in the village, trying to like find community let the space be accessible to them and let's invite them in, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, like community has the potential to be a counterbalance for the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mackenzie said it really well. I think like challenging people is kind of the only way that you're going to really make more room for people. Hopefully like sometimes when you say something, it shatters, like you're like, Oh, I didn't even know I was doing that. Or especially, you know, earlier in the chapter where you're talking about how because it was illegal or, you know, your life could be in danger or you could go to jail, those kinds of things. The only way that like queer people could experiment and express their sexuality was through sex and sometimes like very risky situations. I, you mentioned that like a lot of times maybe had to be in dark. So they didn't even know like for their own safety and for the safety of the person that they were hooking up with. So like that mentality is like so deep that sometimes you like don't even realize that you're like bringing it to other places. Like I'm only being nice to this person because on some level I like I want to have sex with them. I'm attracted to them. Like that's something you have to like really check yourself on because then you like lack so much empathy. There's a whole paragraph here where like Sanjay talks about his struggle you know, where his husband like encourages him to create a community, but he's not looking for sex. And a lot of people like immediately stop talking to him or when they do meet up with him, they quickly lose interest because they're like, they're not going to convince him to have sex with them. So it's much easier for him to completely remove himself from a queer environment and go somewhere. And it's unfortunate that he, you know, that he had to find that, but that struggle is real. Like, you know, blurring the lines and like some people are like, I, I find it really hard to maintain a queer relationship. I, I find it easier to be friends with with women because, you know, we're attracted to men, but like with queer, they were like, oh, queer men are a lot of drama. I didn't push them on that, but you know, that's a big question mark on like, why is there drama? Or why do you feel like there's a lot of drama? There's a lot of complex emotion there. So it's tough. Like I can relate to that struggle with Sanjay. Yeah. It stays one dimensional, right? Like I've experienced so many gay men who are like, oh, I hate the gay community because it's all about sex. But then they only themselves go in the community to get sex. And like, 
again, this loop of just recreating what you don't like and having a hard time making connections and get this obsession with sex. And like, I love sex. I think it's great, but there is this sort of like obsession sometimes almost with it that I partake in sometimes, but hopefully we find ways to go further than that because so many people who don't have the same sexual agency, sexual power, or even just the same sex drive feel excluded and not invited in, in the scene if they're not like sexual. And I really don't want to sound sex shaming right now. That's really not what I want to say, but it's, it's quite interesting how important and how much of a place it has in our scene. As much as we're trying to be sex positive, I would also like a great spotlight shone on platonic queer relationships. Mm-hmm. That is so important because, you know, so many people are like, how do I get a boyfriend? How do I make myself more desirable in sex? But like my queer friendships have been so meaningful and they have given me so much. They've like taught me so much. They've pushed me. And I think like that is so important as well. Like I wish there was as much media as, you know, as much media as there is about like queer people and like finding that relationship. And, you know, I think that that's why I really loved like something like Heartstopper. It was like, just like, a lot of like queer joy and there was like a lot of like really nice queer friendships and it was just like all really sweet and i just i like we need more of that like queer friends like a queer friends would be nice yeah it was very wholesome hard stepper was so so wholesome yeah i get it i'm also like you know i also love sex and think it's great but i think it's important to acknowledge the addictive qualities of sex and how that can permeate in the gay community. Cause I think it, yeah, some people can become like almost like singularly focused on their next hookup on, you know, getting laid and that can detract from being able to form connections with people. And I think I'm guilty of this myself sometimes. Like, I think it it can be pretty distracting. And yeah, I have to remind myself, like you said, Dale, to also foster those platonic connections as well. Because like, those two are happy chemicals in my brain that I need, right? Mm -hmm. And not necessarily going to be the immediate fix that I'm looking for, but are important for my my long-term mental health development as a human yeah that links to what we talked about uh, just earlier in the night for us but in the last episode for other people about this predatory social trait that sometimes is present in our especially in the gay scene but sometimes also in the gay community which makes some gay spaces less comfortable for people because there are some people who go to these places that have not really learned or understood about consent. And of course, when people are high or drunk, consent can take an even lower place in priorities. Yeah, it's really pervasive. And I probably more so, I think, in the gay scene, because it tends to revolve around substances and sex. But it is also present in the gay community. and. Yeah, we need to acknowledge that, I think. And, you know, like predatory behavior can uh, happen anywhere. Yeah. And if a community 
successful, I think it will do the work of like holding that person accountable and, you know, removing them from that community. But that does not always happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think because the queer community is more like sex positive, that sometimes people feel like that lowers the level of consent. So even in a non like, not necessarily like a, a drug or alcohol environment, but like, let's just say at pride, like, you know, people can be a little handsy uh, when they shouldn't be, you know, things like that, or they're like, Oh, you look cute. And then, you know, touch you and you're like, I don't know you, that kind of thing. I think just to respect people, well, even within kink communities, like consent is king, mm-hmm. queen. It's royal. I don't know. I <laughs> I don't know why I gendered it there. Like consent <laughs> is is important. It's everything. <laughs> is everything, yeah. So I think this concludes our conversation about the gay scene and the gay community, or as we now should call it, the gay milieu. Yes, love it. <laughs> um, our next round of readings and the next two reasons why I think gay, bi, and queer men are lonely. Chapter seven is called Wanting More and Longing. So basically FOMO, fear of missing out. And chapter eight is the chapter on autism and other neurodivergences. So this is what we're going to talk about in the next recording. And thank you so much, Dale and Mackenzie, for being here again with me. I think we're getting better at this. I'm like sad that it's halfway over. We're on a roll. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel the chemistry, even though we're not in person, but I feel the chemistry. Yes. Yes. Maybe we should record an episode in person. The grand finale. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Let's do it. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please go give us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And until the next episode, please talk about mental health as much as you can and stay safe. Bye.